Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back uh, after lunch to um, the first of our two plenary sessions this afternoon. Um, the, the first of our speakers is Douglas Campbell, uh, professor of New Testament at Duke Divinity School. Um, native New Zealander, uh, did, did his PhD in the, at the University of Toronto, uh, where many other folks have, uh, have passed through as well. Um, had teaching appointments at Otago and King's College in London uh, before joining the faculty at Duke in 2003. Um, Douglas doesn't need to be introduced um, in terms of the, the, the depth and breadth of his work on Paul. You'll know many of his books. Uh, you can see a good number of them upstairs on the Erdman's stand as well. Um, the paper we have uh, this afternoon is uh, a, a portion of um, a larger project which has just come to, to fruition uh, on which he's been working for some time, a Pauline dogmatics. Um, the title um, uh, reflects that, um, a case study. So the, the particular piece about the future uh, from that book being pulled out and shared with us in advance. The book itself is due out from Erdman's later this year. Uh, for those of you who like what you hear uh, or are intrigued to hear more of what you hear, um, there'll be some uh, extended discussion of it at the SBL and the Pauline Soteriology Group uh, in November as well. So uh, would you join me in welcoming Douglas to the podium? Thank you, Vo. Appreciate that. Um, and I appreciate the invitation to be here. I'm having a wonderful time. People talking about Paul, Bart, Jesus, God. It's never happened to me before. Yeah, I think I've died and gone to heaven. Right. So not so long ago, a clever graduate student, Tom McLaughlin, opened my eyes to an aspect of the eschatological data in Paul that I hadn't noticed before. It's common knowledge that many Jews in Paul's day were convinced that one day God would usher in a great future age that would transform the earth, the age to come. Basically, heaven would be reunited with earth, God would dwell overtly with humanity, and the primeval bliss lost in Eden would be restored, or something similar to this. All the problems of Israel would be resolved by this making of all things new. But although many Jews agreed that this was the case, they disagreed on the precise mechanics, which is understandable because it had not happened yet. In particular, some disagreed on just what role a bodily resurrection would play. Setting aside the two eschatological variations that don't concern us here, the denial of any resurrection at all, and an emphasis on the immortal soul instead of on the resurrection of the body, there were two camps. Some Jews thought that everyone would be resurrected to face a final judgment. So, for example, Daniel 12, 2-3. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Here the resurrected receive a body, having been raised from the dust of death, which allows God to evaluate them for their deeds. This final, essentially retributive judgment will divide people into the innocent and the guilty, the proverbial sheep and goats. And the two constituencies will be sent off to their assigned locations, the sheep to the glories of the reconstituted earth, the goats to burning annihilation or even to torment. So bodily resurrection functions here as a precursor to a divine act of retributive judgment. It is the necessary presupposition for that event. However, some Jews thought differently, and this is the data that had previously escaped me. 
They understood bodily resurrection as, as a fundamentally good thing that obtained access into the glories of the age to come, and it follows that any judgment had already taken place. The resurrection was the reward for a virtuous life. If people had been resurrected, then they'd already been judged worthy of entrance into the coming age, something the resurrection of the body affected directly. One simply wanted, then, to be one of the resurrected, to be one of the few who, re who would recline to eat at the great feast in the kingdom of God. This was the big hope. But everyone else would remain in the dust of death, annihilated by its finality. So as the third of the heroic brothers in 2nd Maccabees says rather truculently as he, as he is being tortured to death, one cannot but choose to die at the hands of mortals and to cherish the hope God gives of being raised again by him. But for you, there will be no resurrection to life. Take that, damn you. That's a scribal gloss, that last little bit. All right. Now, there's an important difference between one wanting to be resurrected and then be judged worthy of life in the age to come, and two wanting to be one of the resurrected who thereby is part of the life in the age to come. The resurrection is doing fundamentally different things in these two scenarios. Moreover, although Paul is often read in terms of scenario one, where all are resurrected bodily, judged retributively, and then the virtuous are rewarded with eternal life, a careful consideration of his letters suggests that he was an advocate of scenario two, where only the righteous are resurrected, a realization that will have a significant impact on his broader dogmatic reconstruction. Paul seems to believe that the resurrection is given only to the followers of Jesus, hence just a limited number of people receive it. This scenario of an entirely positive but limited bodily resurrection can explain why, on the one hand, he excludes recalcitrant sinners from any part in the future blessed kingdom at all, and yet, on the other hand, his account of the future kingdom's consummation is explicitly saving and universal. So in 1 Corinthians 6, he writes rather infamously, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor men who bed men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor tugs, thugs will inherit the kingdom of God, the tuggy. And yet he states repeatedly and clearly that in the new cosmos, a resurrected host will be monolithically acclaiming Christ as Lord. So, for example, Philippians 2, 10 through 11. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That is, everyone who was resurrected here is confessing the Lordship of Christ and therefore is presumably both righteous in him and saved. So the best way to make sense of these two positions consistently, exclusion of some people right beside the universal confession of Jesus' lordship by the resurrected, is through a limited resurrection of the righteous only. But this scenario does explain things very neatly. And it has the added convenience that it is a more consistently Christological account of resurrection. When Jesus was resurrected, he in effect coded bodily resurrection with an indelibly positive function. That event and process were taken up into him. 
Moreover, he did not get resurrected and then face a retributive judgment. Jesus' resurrection is for Paul a saving event. It is the reconstitution of human nature beyond the flesh, which is contaminated by the sinful lusts and gripped by death. The resurrection is then, by its very nature, saving, although it is also rather more than this. It is liberating, life-giving, and glorious. In view of this, it is extremely difficult to make sense of a future scenario within which some are resurrected bodily only to be judged unworthy and sentenced to death and possibly also to hell. Gifted momentarily with bodies free of sin, contamination and death, and temporarily righteous, thanks to the work of Jesus, raised in him, bearing his image, these people are nevertheless sentenced for their sinful past and annihilated once again. If the resurrection is to function as a salvific act in and of itself, and Paul's entire ethic depends on it, then this scenario doesn't make much sense. So, I think we should endorse the presence of scenario two in Paul, within which only Jesus' followers are resurrected. Those who are currently marked by the presence of his resurrected mind of faith and love and no one else are guaranteed a resurrection body in due course. Doubtless, however, someone will cite several texts in Paul that describe a process of future judgment which seem to point in turn towards scenario one, within which all are resurrected bodily to face sentencing. What should we make of this evidence? So, section two. Now, I freely admit that Paul does frequently talk about a process of judgment in the future that will take place after death or at the end of time, whichever comes first, so to speak. However, the entailments here are, I would suggest, false. The subjector has not had her understanding of judgment sufficiently transformed by the great process of judgment that stands at the heart of the cosmos and that stands at the heart of all healthy parenting as well. It would be right to detect a rather Bartian moment in that comment. The judgment that Paul has in view in all these texts is, I would suggest, an evaluative and not a punitive judgment. Once our eyes have been opened to this alternative type of judgment, we can see that this is what Paul has in mind in his texts that discuss a future appraisal. We learn from these texts, that is, that the righteous who are resurrected will still face some sort of scrutiny. They will be held accountable, which is also to say we will be held accountable. But mercifully, salvation does not depend on this divine evaluation. Now, I sometimes explain this distinction to my worried students in terms of the difference between a job interview and a job evaluation. A job interview amounts to a sentencing. We are in or we are out. It is thus analogous to a retributive tribunal. But although these dramatic processes stud our imaginations, probably because they infest our universe of entertainment, we rarely face them in real life. Much more common is the job evaluation. In this sort of judgment, our actual position is not technically on the line, but we are being scrutinized, which is to say held accountable for what we have done so that we can address any issues, improve, and move on be facing such a moment in about 40 minutes. This is in fact how most parents operate, not to mention teachers, including even the occasional professor. 
parents seldom, if ever, judge their children retributively. I've not come across a parent yet who says after a particularly egregious sin, I'm going to kill you for this, or at the least incarcerate you in the basement for 25 years. That is who says it and really means it. Parents judge their children all the time. I am a parent and a child, so I know this statement to be true. We are constantly being evaluated in relation to our behavior by our parents, and we constantly evaluate our children and many others in the second type of evaluative judgment process just described. This is still excruciatingly accountable. Few things are tougher than facing scrutiny from someone we respect and love after we've done something wrong. Deep shame is possible, which is one of the most unpleasant states a human being can contemplate. But this process is framed unconditionally by the parent's love and not conditionally as the retributive judgment scenario is. We are not facing ultimate punishment and exclusion as against inclusion, as against inclusion. Right evaluative judging is a fundamentally pedagogical process in which we are being helped to learn from our mistakes or praised for what we have done well. If we can grasp the ubiquity of evaluative as against retributive judging, particularly in healthy parenting and in analogous managerial and pedagogical situations, along with its stringent accountability, we can see that this is arguably what Paul is talking about when he speaks of his charges appearing before the judgment seat of Jesus, the one whom they ultimately respect and love. Now, the prospect of this scenario should motivate his followers powerfully, certainly motivated Paul. They want this job evaluation to go especially well, and they will doubtless concur with God at this moment that everything caught up in their flesh needs to be eliminated, even if this includes some of their cherished practices and achievements, practices and achievements that turn out under scrutiny to be constructed of chaff. Nothing impure or evil must enter the age to come, and all wrongdoing must be addressed. This judgment will scrutinize and cleanse. All of us must be presented before the throne of God, says Paul in Romans 14.10. All of us. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess to God. But then he adds, each of us will give an account concerning ourselves. It seems clear then that everyone who was resurrected is both confessing the Lord appropriately and supplying an account of their behavior. And this really makes sense only if those who are resurrected are followers of Jesus who then face their Lord and Master. They and they alone are resurrected and then judged in an appropriate moment of accountability. If we're still unsure about all of this, I think 1 Corinthians 3 is pretty decisive. It's on your handout. I'll whip through it. By the benefaction God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it, but each one should build with care. For no one can lay any other foundation than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Good Bartian claim there by Paul. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, though only as one escaping through the flames. I do worry about this text and what's going to happen to my books. Oh, my gosh. Could be bad. How many of the books in our libraries will survive? Ah, oh, well. 
This, at any rate, is a nice account of an eschatological job evaluation. Paul is clearly confident that he is doing stellar work. He is expecting recompense after judgment by his Lord, whom he currently serves so zealously. His work of community building will survive the burning fire of the final day. However, he's not so sure about other teachers at Corinth. They will not be excluded, but they will be chastened, and their rough and consequently inflammable work will be burned away. So this moment of accountability will not go so well for them. Moreover, we learn shortly in verse 17 that some people will be excluded altogether, those who destroy God's temple. It seems then that they will not even be evaluated, they will simply be wiped out, this being the second main aspect of the future in Paul that I'm going to address very briefly before I get into a dogmatic assessment. Paul is confident that God will destroy all sinners on the last day, leaving dead, recalcitrant evildoers unresurrected. And this position is especially apparent in his earliest extant letters to the Thessalonians. As Paul exhorts the Thessalonians in his first letter to that community not to grieve too much over those who have died, he comforts them with various details about the future scenario of resurrection. When the Lord arrives to great fanfare, the dead in Christ will rise and meet him, after which those alive will be caught up in the clouds to be with him forever, so the Thessalonians don't need to worry about their dead. They can have the precious thing that so many ancients and not a few moderns lack, which is hope in the face of death. They will all meet again, the creeds naming this, as the, this gathering as the communion of saints. Paul goes on to emphasize, however, that any remaining idolaters will be caught unawares by this sudden appearance by the Lord and destroyed as labor pains suddenly overwhelm a pregnant woman. The Thessalonians were suffering greatly from their fellow country people. Paul was confident that the day would turn the tables. Those who had pivoted away from disgusting idols to serve the living God would be saved. They would be resurrected. But those who had resisted this call would be destroyed when Jesus returned, this act of destruction attesting to God's righteous disapproval of idolatry and other evils, and affecting a degree of payback for those who had previously been persecuting the Thessalonians. That's it. Right? That's all we need to know. It seems then... Bodily resurrection in Paul pertains only to the elect and the converted. The impure are destroyed by the fiery cataclysm of the day. Paul, in other words, is basically an annihilationist. At this moment, most of the key places are in place for us to press further in an explicitly dogmatic mode, asking whether Paul's overarching account of the future is entirely aligned with his deepest theological commitments. Paul anticipates only the resurrection, this is section four, Paul anticipates only the resurrection of Jesus' followers, and this expectation is directly aligned with his key insights. The obvious question that now arises is whether the restriction of the resurrection to this circle is also warranted, which is a question that comes up from time to time in subsequent church tradition and when Bart's name is mentioned. I ask this question because Paul's most basic warrants seem to suggest a universal resurrection. So we need to set this position out and then consider whether the objections that he and other po others pose to it are sustainable. 
So universalism is, at least initially, a simple position. It is a conclusion drawn from the combination together of two axioms that witness the key aspects of God's character as that is revealed by Jesus Christ. One, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Um, ultimately, reaching to a text like Romans 8, 29, it's to live in communion with him, the triune God. Two, God is Lord, hence omnipotent, which is really to say God gets to do whatever God wants to do. Basically just seems to follow from these axioms that God will ultimately gather everyone into Trinitarian communion, their wickedness notwithstanding. God wants to do this, God can do this, and so God will do this. I introduced the position here in this bald form to note before proceeding how Paul attests so widely and explicitly to the truth of both these axioms. First, Paul knows well that God is love. He writes memorably in Ephesians 3 that God holds a compassion so vast we need the Holy Spirit to prayerfully transform our minds so that we can begin to grasp the way it exceeds our capacity to understand it. This knowledge is grounded, moreover, in the strongest possible warrants. In Romans 5, he states, in a paragraph of incomparable importance, God the Father and God the Spirit loved us enough to deliver up a beloved only child to death on our behalf while we were still hostile. And God the Son accepted this need to die for us while we were still hostile and enemies. We learn from this in unmistakable terms that God loves us extravagantly and unconditionally. Moreover, as Bart reminds us, there is no other divinity behind or outside of this love. The crucified Jesus reveals that this is the very being of God all the way down. And at the same moment, he begins to unveil a prior electing purpose that destines humanity for divine communion, resurrected, bearing the image of the risen Jesus, and living in joyful fellowship with God for eternity. This is what the loving God wants to do. Second, Paul knows that God is omnipotent, although his favorite predication for this, drawn from the scriptures, is that God is the Lord. Paul constantly denotes the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as powerful enough to do vastly more than all we ask or imagine. In particular, this God can create life and has done so, raising Jesus from a grave and thereby conquering no lesser power than death. Romans 8 again. Three quick observations are now in order. First, the conclusion we just noted would seem to follow rather inexorably for Paul. He should have realized on these grounds that God will raise everyone from the dead. The resurrection should, prima facie, apply to all of humanity. Second, this is nevertheless not, I would suggest, the sort of universalism that Bart rightly rejects, notably a particular originist account in terms of apocatastasis. Catastasis, yes, Christoph pronounced that better than I did, um, that locks God into an inevitable resurrection of the morally pure. So Bart pushes back on that clearly, and I'm right with him on that. We see here a very different Pauline universalism that is Christocentric, elective, and eschatological, which is to say it is deeply grounded in the character of God, as both Paul and Bart describe that on the basis of Jesus. Resurrection, it should be recalled, 
as the ultimate unconditional act. Third, Paul's own stated position, as we know, does not follow this logic. It applies this conclusion only to those who have confessed Jesus as Lord, at which moment we are forced to confront a possible wrinkle in his dogmatics. He's obviously consistent with his claim that Jesus' followers will be resurrected and enjoy the triune communion, but everyone else will be annihilated. The circle of resurrection is quite limited, and this seems inconsistent on the face of it. But perhaps Paul's own stated objections to universalism are sustainable, and this might solve our conundrum. Certainly many learned and insightful scholars have objected to the logic I have just sketched out. But they do so necessarily by qualifying the force of one of the two key axioms in play. To escape the conclusion of universalism, that is, either God's benevolence must be modified or God's overarching agency. It must be the case that either, in some sense, God won't resurrect everyone or God can't. And it is here that things get especially interesting with respect to Paul's. My last two subsections address these two objections to these two axioms, okay? So, five. The mitigation of axiom one in Paul himself, namely of the divine benevolence, derives from the circumscription of the impact of Jesus on humanity. His effect is limited to the elect. But we can note a difficulty in this objection immediately. By failing to extend Jesus' resurrected impact to the full parameters of created humanity and to extend its revealed nature in terms of unconditional benevolence, Paul, along with anyone arguing like him at this moment, has lapsed into what T.F. Torrance perceptively called functional Marcionism. Creation is not being coordinated here with Jesus, who is the creator. So his influence is being tacitly removed restricted to a smaller zone of redemption, thereby enacting an illegitimate Marcionite restriction. Alternatively, you can deploy a completely incoherent claim that Jesus' redeeming nature is fundamentally different from his creating nature. I, I don't even want to get into that. I think the other one is marginally better, even though it's still pretty awful. So, this objection to Pauline universalism immediately runs into difficulties, and we should reject it on dogmatic grounds. We don't want to be functional Marcionites. Christ is the creator, and everything he does, revealed in redemption, must apply to the entirety of creation, here humanity, or unacceptable dogmatic bifurcations result. Moreover, in something of an irony, we should note that Paul himself clearly rejects a functionally Marcionite viewpoint. It goes without saying that for Paul, Jesus is involved in creation as Lord. Moreover, he gives an account of the problem facing everyone in terms of Adam and counterpoint to an account of the solution in Jesus. And by doing so, he claims that Jesus' solution is humanity-wide. It corresponds to Adam, the original image of all humanity. So the solution must be equally universal, at the very least. It's very clear in 1 Corinthians 15. In Adam, all of us die. In the same way in Christ, all of us will be made alive again. But in Romans 5, 12 through 21, Paul goes further. In an important text that Barth thought worthy of a short monograph, Paul writes that Adam is only a type of the one who comes later. 
He is an inferior negative copy of an original in the sense that a carefully carved and molded stamp can be used to impress, uh, press imprints into small disks of metal to make coins. Now, ancient coins were never as clear and sharp as the original stamp, and they face in the opposite direction. Jesus is primary then. He is the stamp. Adam is secondary. He's the inferior negative imprint. We read Adam's significance out of Jesus's and not vice versa. Hence, Paul goes on to argue that Jesus's solution to Adam's problem is so superior, it is almost incomparable to the latter. It is vastly greater, both qualitatively and quantitatively. Only when this incommensurability has been grasped from verses 15 through 17, can we proceed to a parallel comparison between Jesus and Adam in verses 18 through 21? The gift is not like the transgression. For if through the transgression of the one the many died, how much more did God's benefaction, the gift given through the benefaction of the one person, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? And the gift is not like the result of the one person's sin. For on the one hand, the judgment followed the transgression of the one person leading to condemnation. But on the other hand, the gift followed many transgressions and led to release. For if by the trespass of the one person, death ruled through that one person, how much more then will those who receive God's overflowing benefaction, which is to say the gift of deliverance, rule in life through the one person, Jesus Christ? But isn't this only what we would expect from a personal intervention by God into a problematic situation? When it comes to God getting involved with creation as a person, as against a person God created dictating the future of humanity, God's person is going to be bigger, better, and more important. And this all suggests that God's plan being affected in Jesus is going to work better than anything that might happen in Adam. And God's plan for humanity in Jesus is resurrected. In short, Paul's own stated position here suggests that everyone descended from Adam should be resurrected. It seems then that Paul provides fairly clear warrant for the rejection of any mitigation of Axiom 1, God's benevolence. God's love must extend through all of humanity. Christ's gift vastly exceeds the economy of Adam as the creator exceeds the reach and significance of a mere image that has been caught up in Das Nechtiger. But the only other possibility, if Paul's stated position concerning a limited resurrection is to hold, must be the claim that God is not capable, in some sense, of carrying out his benevolent plan. This objection would suggest, at least initially, that a great opposing power had wrenched the ungodly from his grasp and defeated his ultimate purpose. And if this is the case, then the universe is really functionally Manichaean, with two great and largely equal powers contesting it, one good and the other evil. In this scenario, evil would triumph, at least to some degree, and this is clearly intolerable. There can be no doubt that for Paul, Jesus is Lord, and he will triumph. All who have been loved from before the foundation of the world, elected and created, will be liberated, resurrected, and glorified as well, if God so wills it. No power in all creation can stand against God and his love revealed through Jesus Christ. But this objection is usually stated in a more subtle form. 
The most common response to my sunny eschatological optimism is the retort that God must respect our agency and therefore cannot save people who resist his offer even if he desires to do so. And at this moment, another of Paul's discussions is especially interesting. This is my final section. There is clear evidence that Paul viewed God as being capable of overcoming human resistance in a suitably nuanced and respectful way when he really wants to. Paul is quite explicit then that the existence of human agency is not a good objection to the coming victory of God, talking about Romans 11. So final section, stay with me. It was a great lunch, wasn't it? But we're, we're paying the price. I'm standing up here myself, feeling it sink like lead into my bowels. All right, four more minutes. The conundrum that many Jews rejected Jesus as both Messiah and Lord was a painful problem for Paul that he tackles head on in Romans 11. There he makes numerous arguments, large and small, all of which are basically designed to take his listeners to the conclusion that despite their current hostility to God acting in person in Jesus, all Israel will be saved. I strongly recommend reading the signifier here, signifier Israel here with reference to the Jews, and uh, my colleague Susan Eastman has written a lovely essay on this in New Testament studies, if you want to get into that. Paul first points out, using the motif of the remnant, that God never lets go of Israel. The existence of a remnant indicates God's commitment to the wider group from which the remnant comes. It is preserved precisely in order to preserve the future of the broader group which will sprout from this stump despite its experience of being cut off in judgment. Hence, the existence of a remnant indicates that God has not let go and will not let go of Israel, but will bring a future flourishing to his presently truncated people. Paul then argues somewhat cryptically that if the first fruits or the, an offering of a harvest is holy, then the entire mass is, and that if the root of a certain tree is holy, then the branches are as well. These are rabbinic arguments, by the way, that I would refer you to a lovely article by Ben Gordon, clever Duke graduate. He gets in all that and does a nice job. Paul goes, goes on to assert, fourth, that God is able to graft broken branches from a cultivated olive tree back into their own tree since there's something natural about this reinsertion. It is, after all, their own tree. As we read on, however, we discover that these four organic images in Romans 11 are grounded by a fifth argument that reaches all the way back to Romans 9. Israel will be saved in its entirety because the later descendants of the patriarchs are beloved because of the patriarchs. God's original gift of life to the ancestors of Israel, to Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, and to Jacob and Leah and Rachel is irrevocable. Quoting, as far as election is concerned, they, the Jews, are beloved because of the patriarchs and matriarchs, I would add, they had a very important role, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. This, then, is the holy offering that sanctifies a polluted harvest, the root of a tree planted on holy ground that sanctifies the branches that spread into unclean space, and the cultivated and fruitful olive tree into which broken branches can be regrafted.
The irrevocable election of Israel's founding families also necessitates the preservation of a remnant, which continues the existence of Israel after it has strayed into disobedience and suffered the deathly consequences of that foolishness, thereby guaranteeing its later flowering into full fruitfulness. This all makes perfect sense. Paul's God is a covenantal God, as Bart never tires of reminding us. This God calls people into existence, loves them, enjoys them, and gives to them, and never lets them go. He gifted life to the patriarchs and matriarchs and called Israel into existence. He elected them. So he preserved them through their rebellions and hostilities, and he will draw them back to him in their fullness, because he is this sort of God. His love never gives up, never lets go. Now, we don't know exactly how this will happen or when. That's important. It's apophatic at that point. Scripture tells Paul that the uh, rescuer, probably Jesus, will turn ungodliness and transgressions away from the descendants of Jacob. So I think that really has to be Jesus. But we don't know any more than this. Paul's statements are not very detailed. He's basically just quoting scriptural texts vividly from the Old Testament. This quotation could refer to a future personal visit by Jesus or an obedient response to his original presence, something else, us going and evangelizing Israel, I don't know. However, we do know that it will happen. Paul is quite clear about this mystery, which is to say this divine secret that has been revealed to him. All Israel will be saved. We're now in a position to draw the key inference for our present discussion. Paul is facing the fact of widespread Jewish rejection of Jesus. Few Jews have, like him, become Messianic Jews or missionaries to the pagans, and perhaps very few. The vast majority of Jews seem to be unbelievers. But Paul is confident that all Israel will eventually be saved. Why? Essentially because of the nature of the God who summoned Israel into existence in the first place. God called Israel into being and loved Israel by way of its famous ancestors. He gifted Israel with existence and life at that time and will now never let go. He is this sort of God, a God who lovingly elects and then maintains this commitment in spite of any hostility and foolishness in the objects of his love. His love will eventually triumph over Jewish unbelief. In short... In the contest between divine benevolence and human recalcitrance, fought out in the space that is Israel, God will win. Jesus will be the victor. The light will overcome the darkness, and all Israel will be saved. But there seem now to be no good reasons for withholding exactly this logic from humanity in general. Paul himself did withhold it, but it seems that we now need to extend his thinking here consistently in an act of sarc critique, Paul reinterpreting Paul. God created humanity, lovingly electing them into existence and fellowship, preserving them through their self-destructive hostility and foolishness, and refusing to let any of them go, as seen especially in the great outreach of the mission to the pagan nations. God loves humanity as much as he loves Israel, Israel standing as a remnant and hence as a saving sign in relation to the rest of humanity, just as the believing Jewish remnant stands as a sign to the rest of Israel. 
God's Son came to save the human race, undoing the destruction of Adam, not just the destruction of Jews. Hence, it seems that exactly the same rationale should apply. God will not let humanity go. In short, in the contest between divine benevolence and human recalcitrance fought out in the space that is the human race, God will win. Jesus will be the victor, and all humanity will be saved. Amen. Right, in conclusion, I am happy to admit that Paul was not an explicit universalist, okay? He wasn't. However, I believe we are entitled to suggest he is one implicitly, bearing in mind what sort of universalist he is. He is an apocalyptic universalist. The two key axioms in forming universalism are both clearly attested in his work and at an absolutely basic level. God loves us extravagantly, limitlessly, and unconditionally, as revealed by the one who died for us while we were yet hostile sinners. And God is powerful enough to save, conquering no lesser force than death, as revealed by the Son's resurrection from the dead. Moreover, some of the most forceful attempted mitigations of these two axioms are opposed by positions that Paul takes up quite clearly elsewhere when discussing localized questions. We are to reject any mitigation of God's benevolence since these arguments tend to collapse into functional Marcionism. As Paul himself says, Jesus is qualitatively and quantitatively superior to all of humanity as it is represented by Adam, not inferior. Moreover, Paul is explicitly universalist in relation to unbelieving Israel, suggesting that the relationship between divine and human agency is not being grasped well by liberals. As Bart well knew, divine agency is never competitive with human agency, but enriches and enhances it, removing this mitigation to axiom two. Hence, in view of the tensions now apparent in Paul's own position and his powerful objections to the objections, it seems necessary and warranted to push through his deepest insights, which are grounded in the God revealed by Jesus, and to let Paul reinterpret Paul in terms of sarc critique. Learning from Paul, but also going beyond Paul, any Pauline dogmatics can affirm that God really is love all the way across and all the way down, and that the covenant is unbreakable, un ultimately enwrapping all humanity and the gracious purpose of God that was established with us through his Son before the foundation of the world and realized by Jesus' resurrection on behalf of everyone into eternal and glorious life.